Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 7 through 15? And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth that is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you, Shelby. Getting short scripture readings now, sort of making up for the time lost reading for hours in Mark. (laughs) Two quick things before we pray. Um, A couple weeks ago, we sent out a spiritual formation uh, assessment. It's like a, uh, it takes about 15 minutes. We've kind of walked through a bunch of questions that look at different aspects of our church life and of your participation in it. It's entirely anonymous. We're just trying to get a collective data to kind of see where we're at, what are our strengths and weaknesses as a church. Um, And we've had um, maybe about 40 or so people take it. We have maybe 100 or 120 people that participate in a month. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, um, we'll we'll continue to send it out in the email over the next couple weeks. We encourage you to look at that and uh, just set aside 15 minutes to prayerfully think through, answer those questions, help us as a church understand where we are and where we need to go. Um, If you've already done that, thank you. Hopefully that was um, a good exercise for you. The other thing is we had a, a kind of a work day scheduled at the park over at Marvin Eford uh, at the barn yesterday, and it was rainy and freezing cold, and so we pushed it to next weekend. So for all of you who didn't sign up, <laughs> this is your second chance. Um, yeah, so we're going to be there on Saturday morning, 9 to 12, have pizza after. It's a great day uh, mostly to just get to hang out with other people from the church that aren't in your community group, do a little work together. Um, so you can either sign up online or see me or Jim. Uh, we'll both be there, but we'd love to have more folks be able to be there. Just, just participate together. Uh, it's a fun day of um, helping out. We, the, the barn has meant a lot to us as a church over the last uh, couple of years as we've done a lot of special events there. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the message. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this prayer. Um, Jesus' response to his disciples asking him to teach them to pray. Lord, we come with open hands now asking that as we read this prayer that you would teach us to pray. Teach us to come to you, to commune with you, to know you, to be in relationship with you. Um, Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves uh, through your spirit. Open our minds and hearts now, we pray. Amen. So there was a, when I was a kid, we would go to these people's, we had a couple of families we'd get together with on Christmas Eve. You go to the Christmas Eve service and then you go over to, the, over to someone's house and there was always a nice buffet spread. It was kind of Christmas Eve, everybody's dressed up for service. It was kind of a nice fancy spread. Probably four or five families there and I forget how old I was, maybe five or six. And I knew by the time I was five or six that I liked shrimp. 
okay? So it's Christmas Eve, it's a nice spread, there's a platter of cold shrimp. So I ran up there, I remember I can just see, I can, it's one of those weird moments where I don't remember anything else about this time of my life, but I have this clear picture of walking up and grabbing a shrimp and just dipping it in the cocktail sauce, just lathering it on and just taking a big old bite out of it because I did not know what horseradish was <laughs> until that moment. And for the next 20 minutes, my whole face knew what horseradish is. <laughs> it's a funny little anecdote to kind of describe how I feel about today's line in the Lord's Prayer. It's this little line, your kingdom come. And if you didn't know about it, maybe you could just waltz right by it. But if you read the prayer without this, if you pray the prayer without this line, I think it's like cocktail sauce without the horseradish in it. You put this line in the prayer, and the prayer becomes dangerous and explosive and burning. This is a dangerous line to pray, your kingdom come. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I've said the Lord's Prayer a lot. I think I just ran on right by this line to get to the give, give me this day my daily bread line. And yet this line frames out everything else that happens in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray it. So I want you to see two big things. I'm going to kind of disperse with any other introduction and dump right in for time's sake. Two big things that, that Jesus teaches us to do with prayer. Two, two ways prayer is so important in praying your kingdom come. And it's for identifying with and longing for the kingdom of God. Prayer is an essential way that we identify with and long for God's kingdom. Now, we got to kind of take a pause and talk about the kingdom of God, right? Your kingdom come. Kingdom's not a word that we use a whole lot. We have countries, we have states. Kingdoms is kind of an antique word for our life. But in Jesus' day, the kingdom was a word that Jesus used all the time. In fact, it's one of his favorite ways to describe what he's come to do, the kingdom of God. It's all over the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, at the very beginning of all the Gospels, you see John the Baptist come and he's preaching and proclaiming for people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom is all over the gospels. It's an it's a important way that Jesus summarizes everything that he came to do and to be, and yet Jesus never really defined it. It's not, he didn't sit down and say, here's what the kingdom of God means. You have to kind of dig deeper to look for that. And in one sense, the kingdom of God is shorthand. It's just a little shorthand way to talk about everything that God had promised to do in the Old Testament. God promises to do a lot of things. The kingdom is a summary way of talking about what God was going to do, what he had promised to do. And so when Jesus came, Jesus is said by Mark, in, in Matthew chapter 9, he writes that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing diseases and afflictions. That what Jesus came to do was proclaim the good news of his kingdom. So if we boil everything down, I'm going to kind of compress like books and books and books into three short points about what the kingdom of God is. This is what at least these three things, three aspects of what when we pray thy kingdom come, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what is he talking about? Three things. First of all, he's talking about the reign and the rule of God. It's not a place, it's a it's dynamic. It's the reign and the rule of God. It's where God's 
reign is visible, where God has control and power and that that's visible. And you might say, well, isn't God sovereign over all things all the time? And while that's true, it's very clear from the biblical story that God, when people rebelled against God, he said, okay, you can go and have your own way. And God takes a back seat and he allows people to go do what they want to do. And his authority, his preferences, his priorities are not visible. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about this promise that God made in the Old Testament to visit his people and make his authority visible. That you can see like, oh, there's the authority of God. This is the rule of God. That you can see it and touch it and feel it and know that God is in control of all things. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about this authority that God has over the world. Number two, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about all things being renewed. Jesus said at one point to the disciples, he said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know the kingdom of God has come because things are happening. (laughs) Powerful things are happening. Things are being renewed. One author says that In talking about the kingdom, Jesus wants to point his hearers to the telltale signs that God's kingship is bursting onto the scenes. That's why when he came preaching the good news of God's kingdom, you saw healings of afflictions and diseases. You saw demons being cast out. You saw people being raised from the dead. Things are happening. Renewal is happening. People that were sick are being healed. Where there was injustice, there's justice. There's things are changing. That God's kingdom, his rule is validated by like actually seeing things being renewed. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rulership of God. We're then talking about the things that are being renewed by that. But then third, we're also talking about a massive realignment of priorities. A massive realignment of priorities. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, God is not a celestial cleaner-upper and sorter-outer of our messes and wants. He is God, the living God, and he is our Father. If we linger here, we may find that our priorities quietly are turned inside out. The contents may remain, but the order will change. See, in God's kingdom, we talk about this Previously, you've probably heard the phrase that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, right? He, Jesus is constantly saying these things. The last shall be first. The blind are the one who see, right? The Sermon on the Mount, it's like the ones who mourn are the ones who are blessed. Right? This is, these are the opposite of the priorities in, that we live in, in the world. When the kingdom of God comes, there is a reordering of priorities. The last are first. The servant is the one who's the greatest. We could go on and on about these reordering of priorities that Jesus is talking about. And this is when we get into the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is teaching ethics. You see he's constantly combating the ethics of the way that the people interacted with each other in the world. The kingdom of God is not just his reign. It's not just renewal of things, but it's this realignment of all of the priorities to God's priorities. So, we, we could go on that. We could go on that way for a long time, talking about the kingdom of God. Those three things, God's reign, God's renewal, and the reordering of priorities. Now bring that back into this little line. Your kingdom come. When we say that line, the word kingdom is a hyperlink into all of of these things that God is doing. 
his rulership, his renewal, the reordering of priorities. When we pray for that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a mass, massive, full-scale, holistic renewal and change of everything in every place under God's authority and banner. You see, that's a, kind of a big deal when we pray your kingdom come. That we want God's visible kingdom to be in the world. That we look over there and we see God's priorities instead of man's priorities. That's what we're praying for. And so as we pray that, there's two big categories of prayer, kinds of prayer that that means for us. N.T. Wright says it's kind of like the two lenses of a binoculars, right? You have two different lenses and you look out. When you, when you pray, your kingdom come, you look through the binoculars, you see two, you're praying two kinds of things. And the first one is this. This is that you, we, when we pray, your kingdom come, we are identifying through prayer with God's kingdom. It's like a pledge of allegiance to God's kingdom. Right? Imagine if someone right now in the middle of Kiev, Ukraine, stood up with a banner that said, Putin's kingdom come. What would happen? He'd be shot dead instantly, right? Because to say those words is not to just like throw up a nice little message. It's to proclaim your allegiance to something, your desire for someone's rule and reign to come. So I, when we, we gather for sporting events, we sing the national anthem and we, we have to take our hats off and put our hands over our hearts. That's what they invite you to do, right? Because you're pledging allegiance to a kingdom. When we say your kingdom come, we're embracing and saying that we embrace and praying through embracing God's rule and renewal and values and timing. But it isn't just out there, but we are entering into it with an embrace of it. Just to say, or I like to say with my kids, there's one of the earliest things that needs to be taught to a child after you are loved is there is a God and it's not you, right? That's what your kingdom come is about. When we sit down to pray, we say, you are our father and this kingdom is not mine, it's yours. And I'm pledging my allegiance to that. that this is explosive, Right? This is through prayer, identifying with the crest, the banner, the flag of God, God's kingdom in the midst of the world. And when we do that, we don't just pledge allegiance to it, but we are seeking a, our own alignment with it. We pledge allegiance like, I'm there. Then, then you realize that if you're going to be in God's kingdom, that now his authority and his re renewal and his priorities have to align with yours, or rather that yours have to align with him. Right? But so often when we pray, we're praying for our kingdom to come. Right? We want our family to thrive. We want our career to go better. We pray for our safety and our health. We pray for our political candidate. We, we pray for our kingdom to come. And Jesus says at the very beginning of the prayer, God is Father, and by the way, what you should pray is your kingdom come. Pledging allegiance and now seeking alignment. So as we pray, we pray trying to align, asking for God to align our desires with God's kingdom. It's so often our prayers, my prayers are, are just selfish desires dressed up as holiness, right? We're praying for our kingdom. We see God sometimes as like our cosmic butler. I just, you, you do, yeah, I go to God when I need him to do something for me, and Jesus is teaching us in this prayer that when we come to God in prayer, we need to pray before most other things, your kingdom come, which is aligning us with his kingdom, and embracing God's reign and his renewal and his priorities, that's dangerous when you start to really put yourself into it in prayer.
So this is the first lens, is that when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying this pledge of allegiance to God's kingdom, and we're seeking our own alignment with it. Now there's, that's his own kind of prayer that I would love to talk about, but all of that is introduction for what I actually want to talk about for the next 15 minutes. Because when you pray, whenever you would pray, your kingdom come, and you pray for the reign of God to come visibly, and you pray for the renewal of God to come visibly, and you pray for things to be realigned by his priorities and for you to be realigned by his priorities, you should notice something. And that is that that's not the way the world looks right now. Right? <laughs> to pray your kingdom come is to admit that we're not seeing it that way. That our lived in reality is not a reality of God's banner where things are all renewed and everything's good. Right? That's not, my, that's not, the, that's not the world I live in. I don't know about the world you live in, but my world is a world of pain and sorrow and war in Ukraine and sadness Fear, anxiety, these are the things we talked about at Advent. We're not going to rehash all of them here, but the world is broken. And everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, every time you pray, your, your kingdom, Lord, come, you're admitting that we're not seeing that around us. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is show you that what the Bible tells us to do when we realize that God's kingdom is not fully present is pray Prayers of lament. Your kingdom come, it's a prayer of allegiance and alignment, but it's also a prayer of lament because God's kingdom has not come fully. And this is the biblical model across all of Scripture. What to do when we realize that things are not going the way that God wants them to go. We're called to come to God with this guttural, emotional, expressive prayer of lament. Lament is a prayer of living in a not yet world, a world where God's kingdom has not yet fully come, where things are broken and relationships are broken. One author I was reading this week said that we come out of the womb crying, right? The world is crying. And he says to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Lament is taking the cry and directing it to God. Right, to speak, actually speak out loud our pain, our anger, our anxiety, our frustration, our confusion to and with God in prayer. That God desires our full honesty with him. This is a little bit different from confession. This isn't necessarily about when you're, you are, are at fault it's going to God with our realization and our frustrations with the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Turning to him in faith and saying, I'm bringing this to you, God. This is all over the Bible. It's maybe the most common kind of prayer in the Bible. More than one-third of the Psalms are laments. That's 150 Psalms. More than 60 of them are laments. It's by far the largest category of Psalms, lament. We can't talk about prayer without talking about this kind of prayer all over. There's laments for fallen warriors, laments for illness, laments for suffering, laments for the dead. There's laments of vengeance, laments of protest, laments of repentance and loss, or laments of depression, laments for justice. 
Lots of people are recorded with laments in their mouth. Hannah, Moses, Job, Tamar, Jeremiah, Jesus on the cross, praise Psalm 22, which is a lament. Most of all in the Psalms, I want you to hear what, what Eugene Peterson says about lament in the Psalms. He says, biblical characters are angry people. In the presence of God, they have realized that the world is not a benign place where everyone is doing their best to get along with others. And if we all try a little harder, things are going to turn out all right. That's not the world that we live in. Lament, says Peterson, quickens the pulse and shoots adrenaline into the bloodstream. The people who practice this prayer get excited. They yell and they gesture. They are engaged or soon to be engaged in acts of war. This is not some kind of calm, quiet prayer that you pray for a minute. This is a prayer engaging your emotions. I don't know if you've ever engaged with prayer deep in your emotions. This is the way that we're called to pray. It's the number one example of prayer in the scripture is to engage with prayer raw with the way that we experience the world personally, corporately, nationally, universally, bringing the deepest, rawest emotions that we have about our experience in the world to God and speaking them out loud to him. And even though this is the most common kind of prayer in the Bible, we don't do it very much. When's the last time you were in a small group that said, today we're gonna spend all of our prayer time on lament? When's the last time you came to a church service and like, this service is all about lament? If you did, you were weirded out by it because it's so not normal, right? How much of your prayer would you describe as lament, deep-seated uttering of your deepest and rawest emotions to God? I was trying to think through some reasons why we don't lament. Why is this not a part of our prayer life? Why is it not a part of the way that we think about the world I came up with a few. I'm going to try not to belabor these. The first one is that in general, we just we try to avoid sad, hard things. <laughs> We're people that just want to sweep the hard thing under the rug and just move on and pretend that things are, are good. And when you read the Psalms, I remember growing up reading the Psalms being like, why are these people so like angry all the time? Why are they so frustrated? Why are they so sad? Like, come on, just fast forward to the last verse because that's the verse that's like, I trust God. <laughs> That's the only verse I knew how to understand. I didn't know I could yell at God for what I was angry about. That's literally what David is doing half the time. The man after God's own heart spends tons and tons of time yelling at God in anger. It's amazing. We, we like positive thinking. We like victorious things. I was, got into a couple weeks ago, I got into a YouTube hole, you know, you just keep on clicking. It was a, this was a megachurch hole. And I was just watching sermons from megachurches. I would watch the first like five or six minutes and then go to the next one. And, and the, I noticed a few different things, but one thing that I did notice was that they're just happy. Just everything about it is just happy. Happy, 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 happy. It's just like just a fire hose of happiness. That's not the way the world is, but that's what we're trying to do. We try to avoid sad things. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of people in my generation have rejected the church because 
when, we, when people grow up in a church that teaches them that you should just pretend that there aren't bad things happening, and then bad things happen, you don't know what to do, and you can't go to the church, so you go somewhere else. Lament is a way to help us actually engage with the realities of darkness. Number two, that this we just try and avoid it, but, but then when we do look at dark things, the weeping of it makes us deeply uncomfortable. Lament, says one author, recognizes shameful history. Right? Lament acknowledges the pain and suffering that has led to current injustices. Lament challenges the status quo of injustice. American Christians that flourish under the existing system seek to maintain the status quo and avoid lament. Lament makes us be honest about the things that make us deeply uncomfortable about the world. So we avoid it. A third reason, I think, is because we are so often focused just on our values, not on God's values. And if things are going well for me, why should I lament? We look out and we are looking for God's kingdom. If we're actually pledging allegiance and alignment to God's kingdom, we should be constantly appalled at what's happening in the world from all angles. It's impossible to just go through life with a non-lamenting attitude if we're actually focused on God's values because the kingdom of God has not yet come. I think some of us don't, don't lament because we don't really believe God cares about our pain. Chris and I went to a soccer game, we said last week, and you just you spend one night in a stadium full of 75,000 people, and you're like, there's a lot of stories out here. How can God actually care about me, my story, my pain? It just feels like maybe he's not there, not listening. Another reason is because it often, I think for some of us, there's been a message that if we critique God, that that's doubt or unbelief. Clay and I were talking about this last week in the, the David example. Right? David is called the man after God's own heart. And yet he opens a ton of Psalms like, where are you? And God's like, yeah, I love that. I want, I want honesty. I want you to come to me. Bringing our anger and our frustration and our anxiety and our fear and our confusion to God is not doubt and unbelief. It's actually proof that there's a relationship. I don't talk to people who I don't have a relationship with. Talking to God about those things is proof of the relationship and crying out for his understanding and his presence. But I think there's a sixth reason. This is the one I had identified as really wanting to highlight for us. All of those are important reasons, but... I think we do lament, just not to God. Public outrage is a secular substitute for the biblical practice of lament. Public outrage. Remember during the summer of 2020 when there's racial, racial riots and all kinds of things, and what was the demand from the world? A public statement. Make a public statement. Everybody wants a public statement. We want, show me how angry you are about this by making a public statement. Lament is taking that to God instead. Right, I think public outrage is modern Pharisaism. Right, listen to this. Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. That's like the definition of Twitter. 
practicing your righteousness before other people and in doing so, declaring your unrighteousness, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward. With regard to prayer, Jesus says in verse five, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Well, Jesus, what do the hypocrites do? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and on social media that they might be seen by others, right? Social media or I don't know what it is for you. Like what public statements, public declarations, that's the street corner. That's Pharisaism. That's not lament. That's not prayer. That's Pharisaism, says Jesus. We have all this angst and anger and pain and frustration. What do we do with it? We broadcast it. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Go into the closet in secret and pray to your Father. Right? I think it would be a good practice for us to spend an hour in the prayer closet for every public comment we make about something. Those things that, you are pub- that people know you're publicly riled up about, how many hours have you spent speaking those emotions to God before you bring them in public? something we need to think about and it's one of the reasons we don't lament because we take our anger and emotions places beside to God so are all reasons we don't lament but here's the thing is that if we're going to be shaped by the story of God it's going to require honesty with and to God right about sin and lamenting and sorrow Augustine says it Great. He says, it is better that the human heart should feel grief and be cured of it than by not feeling any grief to become inhuman. It's better that we should feel grief, bring it to Jesus, and be cured of it than to not feel it. The practice of lament, this practice of praying our emotions before God is essential for embracing the good news of Jesus. Right? The gospel is that in Jesus all griefs are being cured, that the kingdom of God is coming in Jesus. If we want to be shaped as our goal is as a church by that story, we have to be able to be honest. We have to practice being honest with God about these things. Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky, vague optimism religion that ignores or avoids the hardest realities. God invites us to seek intimacy with him by bearing our souls by being concerned for and about his kingdom in the world. And he can bear it. He can bear it up. So those are the two lenses, pledging allegiance to the kingdom of God. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're pledging allegiance to God's kingdom. And then we're longing from our hearts for justice and peace in that kingdom to come. It's that binocular vision that shapes how we participate in the kingdom. Just briefly, I'm gonna demonstrate this today during uh, our intercessory prayer time, but just uh, for practicing lament, here's a simple way to do it. You can use a psalm or uh, another, you, you don't need a psalm, but psalms are helpful. Just four simple movements. The first one is turning to God. This is the, we talked about last week, prayer is communion, this is, an in, this is a pathway to intimacy. You want to be intimate with God? You want to have communion? You want to know what that means? You want to experience it? Then spend time alone with God speaking your deepest emotions. Turn to him. 
Speak out loud. Try it this week. There's no format. Set your, set your timer for 15 minutes so you don't have to look at it and just speak out loud to God your emotions. Try it. <laughs> maybe you have, maybe you do. Turn to God. Then secondly, lament. Actually complain to God about things. Right? Things inside of your own sphere, that's personal lament, and things outside of your sphere, this sphere. Those are things out there in the world where you see the kingdom of God lacking specific injustices, wars, whatever it is. You, none of us can care about everything all the time. What is it that God has put on your, your heart to care about, to lament over? Take time complaining to God about those things that you see that are missing in the world. Turn to him, lament, then ask. Ask for his help. Lament is not just yelling at God. <laughs> lament has a movement that moves from complaining to asking for God's help. That all, of the, um, all of the psalmists, all, almost all the lament psalms, with one or two very dark exceptions, have this arc that goes from complaining to asking to hope. It's like with, with my kids, there's, there's always a complaint at the beginning. <laughs> And then there's an asking that comes out of that. And then there's a hope and trust that I'm there and going to respond. And then the last thing is, is trust. Find a way to proclaim faith and trust in God who will respond to your complaints and your needs. There's a lot of resources for this. Psalms are good. There's, we're going to send out this week a list of psalms that are great to pray through. There's other biblical prayers. Um, David has a great lament in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Um, you know, we've referenced the Every Moment Holy Book, which is written prayers. There's a second volume now that's all about pain and sorrow and death. It's just, and it's like twice as long as the other volume. Um, that's a great resource for putting words. Sometimes we really need other people to help us put words to the things that we're feeling. Written prayers are so good for that. Um, we're gonna send some guides this week, but also you can lament with other people, with your community group, with a friend, Set aside time specifically for this discipline. I'm going to close with this quote. It's by Glenn Packiam. He says this. He says, Lament is not our final prayer. It is a prayer in the meantime. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we know that sorrow is not how the story ends. The song may be in a minor chord for now, but one day it will resolve in a major chord. When every tear is wiped away, when death is swallowed up in victory, when heaven and earth are made new and joined as one, when the saints rise in glorious bodies, then we will all sing at last a great hallelujah. Your kingdom come. And this is how the Bible ends, right? John says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And John responds with, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your kingdom to come in our own lives, in our own homes, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our country, in the world. We want to be identified with you and your kingdom and the renewal that you are bringing. And yet, even thinking that thought leads to pain and grief as we look around the world, as we look at our own selves, 
as we look at our broken families and our broken churches and our broken neighborhoods and broken politics and broken countries. And so we, we ask, God, that you would teach us, draw us to yourself, that we would lament, that we would express to you those things that you have put on our hearts, that we believe that you want to have a relationship with us, to draw us in, to hear us, to demonstrate your trustworthiness. Give us faith to come to you to speak these things, that you would shape us as people who love your kingdom above all. I pray this in the name of Christ.